certainly gives us places to go visit. Yeah, all kinds of places. That'll yeah. be good. All right. Did you guys do your homework? And read. Yeah. You have any thoughts or questions on Romans as it relates to Israel and our study on Israel? And we still won't get into the church really today. We're still going to be looking at Israel and Israel's history. But did that spark any thoughts in your mind? Well, I had a question in Romans 11. Um, okay. Where it's talking about enemies, uh, I don't know, God's mystery. And we'll actually get into that a little bit in our class today. We're going to be going to uh, Ephesians 3, though. But God's mystery in Romans 11. All right. Um, All right, 28. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient in God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Am I missing the mystery word in there? Was that what you're talking about, the kind of provoking Israel to jealousy? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, again, we'll get into that a little bit, but um, he's talking about, um, again, making this clear distinction between Israel and the church and how his purpose in, um, I don't know if setting aside is the right term, but at least for a time, for a period, uh, his focus isn't on Israel, but it's on the church so that he can draw Israel back to himself and provoke them to this jealousy. Um, and again, we'll get into that in a little bit. As far as our... Yeah. As far as, yeah, letting them know that they are God's chosen people, but they are not currently in favor with God. I mean, as a whole, because they have turned their back on God. They're not um, being obedient to him. They've rejected their Messiah. And the church has stepped in and kind of been, that whole chapter is talking about how we've been grafted in and we've been the beneficiaries of that relationship. And they're going to look in and um, be provoked to jealousy and want to have that relationship with God. And ultimately, they will be drawn back to him. So that's one of the distinctives of our understanding of scripture is that there is definitely a a distinction between the church and Israel, and we believe in a future for uh, ethnic Israel, that God has plans for them yet to unfold. Like we looked at last week going through Genesis, he made promises to Abraham that were specific and to him uh, distinctly. So he will fulfill those in that way that they understood them to have been made. All right. Um, Any other preliminary thoughts or questions on Israel, stuff we looked at last week, getting your homework? All right. Is Israel the church? No. Is the church Israel, spiritual Israel? No, there's a distinction, right? We have to recognize that. 
All right, and last week, uh, we were working our way through this Israel timeline, seeing where they've come from in history and where God's brought them to. We looked at, um, starting off, Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham and how he reiterated that covenant with Isaac, with Jacob, and he changed Jacob's name to what, Walker? Oh, right there. All right, anybody else? Help them out. I don't think we mentioned it. Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. He had 12 sons. Remember, they became 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Talked about the law and how the law was given to Moses. Um, And we looked at uh, 1 Samuel 8 last week. was the last reference we looked at. And we'll go ahead and pick up here. Um, We see that um, after... I have to get on the right page here. Um, after First um, Samuel, we saw that um, God was still working in the the people, but He was doing so among the the judges. We had a period of about <laughs> four hundred years or so where God was leading and guiding through the judges. These people said, "We want a king," um, just like everybody else. That wasn't um, what God had wanted, but he moved on and and gave them a king nonetheless because they weren't liking the way that things were going. And in the midst of truly awful kings, uh, a number of them, all of the kings of uh, Israel were wicked, but there were some kings in Judah that were good and righteous. God raised up many great prophets that spoke of God's judgment and plan of redemption. And so... Not all the, in fact, the majority of the kings were evil and wicked, but there were a few that were good and righteous and godly. Let's look at uh, Isaiah 42. Jumping forward again in history a little bit through looking at some of these prophets that were prophesying as these kings were leading most often foolishly. Isaiah 42 I'll go ahead and read those verses there. Verse 1, 6, and 7. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Jumping down to verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bright, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And then just because I like verse 8, I'll throw verse 8 on there. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So, uh, what does Yahweh have in view in this passage? What is going on in, in these verses? Who is he talking about? Is he talking about Israel? Because he's put, called you in righteousness. Uh, let's look back at verse 1 and 42 says behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen one in whom my soul delights I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations so this is looking forward 
Yeah, it's a, a messianic prophecy, looking forward to Christ and how Christ is going to bring forth. See there again, it says justice to the nation. So throughout the Old Testament, we get little glimpses of the fact that salvation is for more than just the Jewish people. It's for the, the nations, for the world. Um, but still, we see later on, again, as we'll look in Ephesians 3, that largely this was a, a mystery. Israel knew that they were to be a, a nation who was set apart, who was distinct, who was different, so that they would show forth the glory to the nations. But the fact that the nations would be able to step in and partake in this salvation and this relationship, that was, again, in large part, a mystery that isn't revealed until the New Testament, the New Covenant. Uh, will somebody look up Luke 2.32? And I'll go ahead and grab Acts 13.47. Acts 13.47 says, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So, again, this is uh, a reference back to the Old Testament, back to this same passage in Isaiah, um, talking about how he's going to be, how Israel is to be a light for the other nations. And what's Luke 2.32 say? The light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. All right. So, again, interspersed throughout the Old Testament, we see this concept that salvation was uh, not meant all along just for the Jews alone, but for other nations as well. All right, let's jump forward to Isaiah 49. Isaiah chapter 49. Will somebody grab those verses for us? great verses starting off in verse 5 with being formed in the womb just like Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 but then going on talking about how uh, it's too small a thing for God to just save them alone uh, in verse 6 is it it is too small a thing um, that you should be my servant to rise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the and to restore restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So you think about that, that God is going to save and restore Israel, this chosen people of his who repeatedly sin against him and he repeatedly shows grace and mercy, uh, chesed, loving kindness, right? That he's 
bestowing upon them. And they just turn around and throw it in his face. And they serve and worship other gods. And God is still yet going to redeem them because he's the one and the only one who walked through those cut up animals, right? Back in Genesis 15, he's the only one who that covenant was dependent upon. That was an unconditional covenant. And so he says, yes, I'm going to save and restore this unfaithful harlot of Israel. And he says, but even that is too small a thing. I've come to bring salvation to the nations that they may, that it may reach the ends of the earth. It's a pretty sweet passage. Um, any other thoughts on what's going on there? Mm-hmm. It might be uh, not quite on that, but through this whole last week and this week, you know, about Israel as a chosen and that promised Abraham. Yeah. God actually was a, he wanted to destroy them. And Moses stood up and said, you know, and do you think he would have actually destroyed them? Even with that covenant? What do you think? I don't know. You don't I mean, know? He made a covenant, he made a promise. So, he never breaks promises. Let's go back to our theology proper. Yeah, God never breaks his promises, right? He is a God of truth. Um, You think of the attributes of God. He is uh, faithful and true, and he is sovereign. What does the sovereignty of God imply? He's in control of everything. He is in control of everything. He's all-powerful, right? He is over everything. Think of the transcendence of God, that he is above and outside of time and space. So, if a God like that, an all-powerful, sovereign, omniscient God who knows everything, if that God was going to be swayed by his creation, by Abraham, that we'd have problems, right? Because that wouldn't be the, the same God who maintains those same attributes. So, I think what's going on in those kind of passages and where there's intercessory prayer being offered to God that he has manipulated the, manipulated is probably not the right word, but he has set in place uh, certain situations uh, so that people will reach out to him. They will, yeah, they will come to him. Mm -hmm. But if we look at those situations, we look at those texts and we say, well, God was responding to his creature, then that takes away the aseity of God. Uh, Aseity means that he has within himself being that he's not becoming in any way if god is becoming if he's growing if he's learning or developing then he's not god and so if he were to be responding to something if he were to be um developing or again learning like oh abraham you have so much insight and wisdom and uh please tell me what i should do in this situation well god is not a god who has a counselor god is not a god who needs somebody else to tell him what to do so he is the the primary active force in that and he's using uh the situations to bring moses to himself and remember that moses is acting as a type as a shadow of jesus he said that there's one coming after me who's greater than me so i think that was all within god's plan and purview even before uh creation began andy well even earlier in time Abraham was at Oaks of Mamre, and God had come down and he said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. 
and it, it's like it's like Abraham. But what, what about fifty? Bartering. Yeah, fifty. Yeah. What about forty-five? What about forty? Uh -huh. You know, I think the the difference is, is it's like it's like, and this is a poor analogy, but it would be like if someone had said before they get into a bartering situation, this is the way that I'm going to go. This is exactly what I'm going to do when I barter with this person. The other person is actually looking at that and seeing that while they're talking to them. God is not constrained by time. He sees Abraham's, Abram's heart. He knows what's in his heart. He knows that he wants to save as many people as possible out of, out of the towns, right? You know, so it's not like God's like changing his mind. God's like going, okay, I know what his heart is. I know where he's going to go with this. And, uh, you know, it works out that he's going to save a lot and, and his kin. And that's it, basically. Yeah. Right? Yep. So. Yeah, and there's a reason that we laid out this study in the order that it is. And pretty much every systematic theology is laid out the same way. It'll start with either bibliology or theology proper. So a study of the Bible and why the Bible is trustworthy and reliable. And then from that, we can understand who God is and that is that has to be like the foundation of our understanding of scripture because if we understand that God is all these things he is truth and faithfulness and sovereign and uh, he has within himself life he is self-existent again a satiety is the word that we would use to describe that then that will help form and direct our understanding of the rest of scripture and again even inform this aspect of ecclesiology where um, Israel is for sure distinct from the church because God has made a promise to Israel, promises that have yet to be fulfilled. And so we know that there has to be a, a distinction, that we can't just, as a church, sweep in and replace Israel because that would compromise the character and the attributes of God. All right. Uh, here in Isaiah 49, the fathers setting apart the son was done with a view to bring the truth to the nations that all people might be united to God by faith. Again, that's awesome. And I'm sure that for Isaiah and for the, the Jewish people, it was even more awesome. Um, just that thought that was completely brand new to them. I mean, if we're in the church, we've all been in the church for a relatively long period of time so this should be a concept that you know we've been familiar with but to Israel who've been this covenant people of God for so many millennia um, it's come to their understanding that wow it's not just about us but it's about what God is going to do through the Messiah for these other nations how he's going to bring honor and glory to himself through not just the Jewish people but the world it's pretty Amazing thought. All right, let's jump forward to one of our favorite chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and will somebody actually read from verse 7 through 12? Isaiah 53, 7 through 12. Okay. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. Hmm. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
he has put him to grief. When you make when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. All right. Yeah, talk about God's uh, sovereign omniscience, right? His, his foreknowledge, his complete understanding that it pleased the Lord to crush him. Um, I think that's got to be the, the pinnacle of examples that Jesus dying on the cross, that was planned from before time, right? Um, there wasn't a surprise to him. It wasn't something that caught him off guard, but he knew that all along. This servant, the Messiah, was to suffer and die at the pleasure of the Father in order to bring about justification. Um, dwell on that for a minute, right? That it pleased the Father to crush the Son. Um, we talk about how Jesus went voluntarily to the cross, and even that can cause us to, to pause and to wonder, why would, why, right? But again, just to step back and to realize that the, the first person in Trinity sent the second person in Trinity to, to die, to be crushed brutally for something that is unjust, right? That is the most unjust act in all of history, that the perfect sinless Son of God would be crucified and have laid on him our sins. That is grotesque really to think about but beautiful at the same time he will intercede for the transgressors um, again <laughs> that should cause us to, to worship that he is standing on our behalf um, pleading with the father and showing the father it is it is finished right it is paid in full to tell us that it's done um and again, not just for Israel, and not, not for all of Israel, only for those who are in Christ. So we have to make that distinction all throughout that not every Jew is in Christ. Not every Jew is saved. Um, and maybe reading through Romans 9 through 11, you could have walked away with that understanding. It says that all of Israel will be saved. That's speaking in the future. It's not speaking of all Israel historically, but... At some point, Israel will come back to uh, their Messiah, and they will embrace their Messiah. Again, like we talked about, in part because of the church, and they will look at the church, and they will be um, drawn to a, a righteous jealousy, and they will see what we have with our Messiah, and they will desire that, and they will want that, and Christ will draw them back to himself. All right. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. We're just about out of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The second to last old, old covenant prophet foretold 
Elijah would come before the tribulation. So Malachi, the second to last Old Testament prophet, foretold of Elijah who would come before the tribulation. If Malachi is the second to last Old Testament prophet, who is the last Old Covenant prophet? Andy? Jesus. No. Oh, sorry. Although he is a prophet, right? Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And he was operating under the Old Covenant, but... Oh, oh, John. Yeah, John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, came in the spirit of Elijah. And you read about that in Luke 1.17. Also, want to take into account Matthew 17.11. All right. After Malachi, Israel endured 400 years of silence. And then Assyria had destroyed the north... Babylon had destroyed the south. Um, that would, had all taken place in 722 and 586 and a little bit before that. Um, these two nations had been, they were already separated for a number of years and then destroyed and taken off into captivity by uh, Assyria and Babylon. And you'll notice that it um, might help you to keep in mind that it was about 400 years that uh, Joseph was in slavery 400 years of judges in the land then again here 400 years of silence in this intertestamental period this is in between the Old and New Testament where for about 400 years we really don't have uh, any word from God we have the apocryphal books but we don't see them as being authoritative yes yeah that was what I was going to actually ask you about what as obviously not as scripture but are they historical? Uh, like 1st and 2nd Maccabees and... Yeah, yeah. there's some, some historical stuff you can get from there. You can read about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and what went down there and um, the history of... Uh, what is that Jewish holiday with the candles and the menorah and uh, Hanukkah? Hanukkah? Yes. Yeah. yeah, you can read about that in there. So, yeah, there's some historical value there, but... Again, we don't recognize them as being inspired. And even the early church didn't recognize them as being inspired. And when they put them into, uh, like when Jerome put them into the Latin Vulgate, he didn't think, well, these are from God, these are inspired. But he actually had a, a little note at the beginning and just said that we don't understand these to be inspired, but there is some historical value in there. And so we're going to include that in there. And Do you why he said that? Because he didn't think that they were inspired? Because he actually learned Hebrew and had gone to Jerusalem to study. And the Jews there were like, this is not inspired scripture. Yeah. He's like, and basically the direction of Rome, he was told to add him, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think anybody really in the early church ever considered them to hold any weight. They were just kind of included for that historical purpose and... Um, it's just easier and cheaper when you're making a binding to put more stuff in there and put it all together. So for pragmatic, practical reasons, it was included, and then it went on to be uh, abused and really embraced in a wrong kind of way by the rest of the church. So you need to be careful about that. All right. Uh, continuing on into the New Testament, let's look at John. John chapter 1. What's John chapter 1 about? Jesus. 
<laughs> what about Jesus, Andy? What's unique and special about John chapter 1? Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. the Word, and the Word was God. with God, and the Word was, was God. Yes. All right, so there's oh, distinction and uh, union right there. <laughs> yeah, not first John, not not this yes. morning. <laughs> yeah, so it's about the the incarnation. One of the great places to go to for the incarnation uh, and the deity of Christ. John one, Colossians one, Hebrews one, all really highlight the deity of Christ. Three chapter one ver- or books that are good to remember. So John one twenty nine through thirty four. Will somebody grab that, please? Yes, please. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hmm. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who reigns before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. All right. So this is um, the John the Baptist who was had come in the spirit of Elijah, just like Malachi, the second last prophet, had prophesied. Speaking of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the Jews, of Israel, of the world, right? And like Britt read for us just a little while ago in Isaiah 53, 7, like a sheep that is silent before it shares, he did not open its mouth. Um, He did not open his mouth. And um, the Lord was pleased to crush him, and the good pleasure of the Lord will bring to prosper in his hand. Um... And he will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. So John the Baptist is here as a forerunner prophesying. He's here, right? This is it. Um, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What major statement is John making here? (laughs) He's here, right? It's, It's Jesus. This is the guy, right? He's the Messiah we've all been waiting for. He's the one who uh, is taking away that sin. So that's about the Trinity. Yeah. Pretty obvious. A big deal. Yep. All right. With the arrival of Jesus and the institution of the church, John effectively becomes the final Old Covenant prophet. All right. We talked about this word a little bit last week, ecclesia. It's a Greek word for church. It literally means called out ones or an assembly, a gathering, a congregation, a group of people. We looked at how (coughs) Israel was called ecclesia, God's gathering, his um, called out ones, his holy ones in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it takes on a completely different meaning altogether. In the New Testament, the word is often denoting the entire body of believers worldwide as opposed to a local expression. We've talked about that sometime before, but just to remind you, a 
church with a capital C is speaking of what? Lowercase Catholic Church. <laughs> okay, lowercase Catholic Church. That's going to take us down a different road. But Catholic <laughs> just means what? Universal. All right, universal. So if you see Catholic capitalized, that's talking about Roman Catholicism, right? But lower C is talking about universal. You might read that sometimes in a theology book or, or something of the sorts, but that's kind of old, antiquated, outdated. You don't really see that much anymore. But yeah, it's talking about the universal church or the invisible church, right? Because you can't see who is in the church. Even within this room, I hope and pray that we're all within the church of Christ, but we don't know that. We can't see hearts. There could be wolves in sheep's clothing, right? There could be people who outwardly say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm in Christ, but they haven't had the, the heart change, right? They haven't been regenerated and redeemed. And then a lower C church is talking about what? A local body. So right here, we are part of a local body, right? And that, as opposed to being universal is local and it's opposed to being invisible is visible and not everybody again within the visible church is in the universal church so they're not uh this does not equal this right there's a distinction between those two and the new testament word again is often denoting the entire body most often talking about the entire universal invisible church as opposed to a local expression, although we see those as well at times. All right. In the Septuagint, what is the Septuagint? The Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Ecclesia is often used to refer to the assembly of Israel. First Chronicles 28.8 says, So now in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord. Um, it's a great example of how Israel is called an assembly, an ecclesia. Um, there aren't, um, they're, they're used kind of interchangeably in the Septuagint, in that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. All right, Matthew sixteen eighteen. This is the first time that Jesus uses the word and introduces this word, ecclesia, uh, in the New Testament. And let's look at that real quick. This is right on the hills of uh, Peter's great confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, and right before he gets rebuked for telling Jesus not to go to the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So all within a matter of minutes, seemingly. But in Matthew 16, 18, it says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What is unique about the, the verb tense that Jesus uses in that verse? I'll read it one more time. I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Tense. Is that present tense? Future. I will oh, build my church. Sorry. That's future tense, right? 
So he's not hearkening back to the ecclesia, to the congregation of Israel. That's already been established, again, back in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22. He's talking about a future establishment of a different congregation, a different called out ones, a different gathered people, um, a different ecclesia. And this understanding of the church is really why we had such a hard time not meeting together during the whole COVID thing, because we didn't see that as being a gathered people, as being a congregation of people who are congregating together, who are being united together. Um, It was definitely a difficult situation, but this understanding of the church and the called out gathered assembly had a lot to do with the decisions we were making at that point. All right, Jesus is simply teaching that there is an assembly of called out ones coming future that is different from the assembly of Israel. Again, I will build my church. Though it may seem basic, we must understand this distinction. The church is a mystery revealed in Ephesians 3. Um, Yeah, I don't think we'll actually look at Ephesians 3, but that all throughout that chapter, it's a good chapter to write down. Um, And in my mind, I've uh, titled that chapter the the mystery of the church because we see that this is a a new understanding for Israel. Again, they had somehow missed the fact that Jesus had come for all the nations. Salvation was open for more than just the the Jewish people. Logan, do you have something? No, that's interpretive by the translators of the Bible. But it, it's just that word, ecclesia. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus didn't pull out his carpentry tools, right, and build a local building for a local assembly to come and gather. Yeah, he was building the, the universal invisible church. Um, you look at John 6, and it says that all who uh, God calls will will come to him, that Jesus isn't going to lose any who come to him. And you look at local churches, and there have been many people who have apostatized, who have named the name of Christ, and then gone off and denounced Christ. And that's not, that's not true of the universal church, right? He won't lose any who the Father gives to him. All right, any other thoughts on any of that? That's a lot, but it's important. There's a back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. And so, in that uh, yes. connotation of what you were saying there in Ephesians 3, yeah. the church is re- referencing the new Gentile believers or the Jews and Gentiles. Yeah, it's both. So, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, male and female. Um, but Primarily, it's um, talking about the, the Gentiles being a part of that. That's the, the mystery aspect of it. Because before it was kind of, this is our group, this is our club, we're the Jewish people. Um, we're the, the circumcised, the children of Abraham, right? And everybody else are kind of on the outside. They're not in the cool kids club. And then Paul comes on board in Ephesians 3 and he says, no, it's, it's for everybody, right? And then again, looking in, Acts 10 and 11 at the vision of Peter that uh, the sheet comes down and God tells him, Peter, take and eat. And he said, no, God, that's unclean. I'm not going to do it. And God says, 
what God has made clean, you shouldn't refer to as unclean. So you should embrace these Gentiles, take them, baptize them. Um, the Holy Spirit has come upon them. Um, they are just as much part of the church as, as you are. And Peter struggled with that. He had a hard time. And even later on in Galatians, he wasn't sitting down eating with the Gentiles. And Paul had to call him out. He had to confront him to his face and say, hey, you're, you're being a hypocrite. Uh, when James' friends come down, you want to kind of separate yourself from the Gentiles and you want to just be your, your little Jewish special clique again. He said, that's, that's not okay. That's not how things are. We are one body. Um, again, no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Mandy? No? All right. Norman Geisler says, the contrast is clear. The mystery of how Jew and Gentile would be joined into one body in Christ was not in the Old Testament, which revealed that Gentiles would receive the gospel's blessings. The church did not begin until after Jesus came, died, rose, and established it on apostolic foundations. Again, I will build my church, right? This is speaking of what is to come in Acts chapter 2, uh, what we consider as the foundation of the church. Ryrie says, though there is a continuity between the redeemed of all ages, there is a discontinuity because the redeemed today are placed in the body of Christ and not in some sort of Israel. Similarly, the redeemed before Abraham's day did not belong to Israel, yet they belong to the family of God. So there are pre-Israel redeemed and post-Israel saints. So that kind of brings us back to what we were talking about before with the, the time of the Gentiles or the age of the Gentiles. You guys uh, would have read about that in Romans, I think it's 1125, somewhere in there. Um, and that talks about the, the age or the time of the Gentiles. And that's where, um, again, God is focusing on the Gentiles for a period, for a time, while Israel is kind of on the back burner. They've rejected their Messiah. And so God's saying, well, I'm going to open it up to the Gentiles again. God's not reacting to Israel rejecting him, just like God wasn't reacting to Abraham or Lot or uh, the people who wanted to crucify Christ. He knew all along what was going to happen. But this is his period, his time. Um, and that chapter, chapter 11, talks about how <coughs> Israel is pictured as an olive tree. And we are going to be, as Gentiles, grafted into that olive tree. So we're not naturally a part of that tree. That is for the Israels, for the Israelites. But we have been grafted in, put into that tree. And it talks about how if we being unnatural branches can be grafted in, how much more so can Israel being the natural branches who are um, natural to that tree, they can be grafted back into that tree. And they, in fact, will one day that Israel will be um, restored and they will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Also, with this understanding of church, um, we read, especially in Matthew, Matthew talks a lot about the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom, we can picture as this big circle. Um, all these people belong to God. They are part of God's army, right? They have uh, repented and come to God. But within that, we have the church. And so 
we don't see the kingdom and the church as being synonymous, um, although there's a lot of overlap. So we being within the church or within the kingdom, but people in the Old Testament, they weren't a part of the church, right? David wasn't in Christ's church. Um, Abraham, Moses, these guys weren't in God's church, but they were in God's kingdom. And likewise, after the church is raptured, after the restrainer is removed, the Holy Spirit is taken out, there will still be those who come to God, who come to Christ with an understanding of salvation. They will be a part of the kingdom, but they won't be a part of the church. Any thoughts or questions on that? Because, again, that's a lot. Say that again. That the church is a part of the kingdom, but not everybody who is in the kingdom is in the church. But that's what it's going to be going forward? Yes. After the rapture, that will be the end of the church. Does that make sense? Because the church is, uh, going back to our pneumatology, our study of the Holy Spirit, the church has been baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has put his mark on us and said we are his. And at the rapture, the Holy Spirit is going to be taken out. We're going to get into ecclesiology in a couple of months, um, or eschatology, rather, talking about the end times and how that all will work out. Um, But the church isn't always going to be here because the church is marked by the Holy Spirit and the restrainer is going to be removed. So does that mean after the rapture no one else will be saved? They will be saved. They just won't be a part of the church. (laughs) Yeah. But all are believers. Yes. Just like Jeremiah and Isaiah were believers. Because that is the age of the Gentiles, right? God's focus is on the Gentiles during that period of time. Um, Even like in the Old Testament, there were Gentiles who were saved, right? Even within the line of Christ. Remember Rahab, the harlot, when Joshua went in to um, scout out the land, she took in the, the spies and she actually was adopted into that family, right? Ruth. She wasn't a Jew, and she was adopted in by Naomi, and she embraced her. She said, well, your God is now my God, right? And your people are my people. Uh, She was a a Gentile who was brought into the kingdom of God. And in the church age, there are still Jews who are saved, right? But it's kind of rare. It's not really common. The Jews, in large part, have rejected their Messiah. They are still looking forward for a Messiah. They're looking for a king to come and rule and reign on this earth in a very visible fashion. And we recognize, well, he will do that, but he came to to crush sin, right? To stomp out sin and to make propitiation for our sin. And again, after the church is removed, there will still be Gentiles who are going to be saved, presumably. I mean, we have no reason to think that they won't, but... Um, in large part, that's God putting his focus back on the Jewish people. That's the tribulation. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And Walker, Jacob's name was changed to what? Israel. Israel. Good job. <laughs> so a time of Israel's trouble. Um, it's God 
moving his focus back to Israel. So if we were to look at it on a timeline, we would see uh, God's primary focus here is with Israel. Um, well, first with Abraham, right? And then Isaac, and then Jacob, who becomes Israel. He makes a nation out of Abraham. And then the Messiah comes. He's cut off. He's rejected by the Israelite people. And this is where we have the, the time of the Gentiles. And then after the rapture, we have um, the church being taken apart, not apart, being taken away. Um, and then God's focus once again returns to Israel. Yeah, yeah the, the church age and time of the Gentiles, I see as synonymous. And there are, there's another view on this age or time of the Gentiles that thinks that it's talking about uh, political or governmental control. And they would place the, the beginning of the time of the Gentiles at like the Babylonian captivity, where the Jews aren't in control of themselves, but Babylon comes in, kind of overtakes control. Um, but I would view it as... Um, the start of the church, Acts chapter 2. All right. Other thoughts or questions on that? Would you say that in the second half of the tribulation actually is when they God turned his focus to the Jews? Because that's when the most damaging part falls upon the Jews of destruction, annihilation from the world, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of vague, but it's uh, And again, we'll we'll get into eschatology here in a couple of months, but um, yeah, people will make a distinction at that that midpoint of the tribulation. Tribulation seven years, so three and a half years. The first part, uh, a lot of people see as Satan's wrath being poured out, and the latter part, which is called the Great Tribulation, where the heat's really turned up. People will see it's being the wrath of God. Of course, again, we know God is a primary mover in all of this, right? He's the one who's orchestrating even what Satan is doing. But yeah, things are definitely turned up those last 42 months, last three and a half years of the tribulation. But that's yet to come. There's a little bit of overlap here, though, between the church and Israel and the history of the two and how they relate with even the end times. Other thoughts or questions on this concept? I know that's a little bit confusing, but as you read, again, especially throughout Matthew, you read about the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God because Jews didn't want to use the name of God, so Matthew would refer to it as the kingdom of heaven, um, whereas the other Gospels refer to it as the kingdom of God. Um, Matthew 13 is where you'll get the most information on the kingdom. Um, but just know that there's a, a distinction between the kingdom and the church. The church is a part of the kingdom. So what would you call the, the rapture ends the church age? Yes. So what do you call the seven years? What is that? Just the tribulation period? Satan? <laughs> no, it's the tribulation period. So and future things we have to hold a little bit more lightly because they're future, right? They're not historical and... Um, 
we we can take a position on it. We should take a position on it, but we don't want to speak completely dogmatically on it. Andy? So I guess definitionally in my mind my entire life, it's always been that to be part of the church, you have to accept Christ. Oh, right? yeah. To be in God's kingdom. Or be accepted yeah. by him. Be accepted by him. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Be accepted by God, you have to accept this son Christ. Mm -hmm. right? My, why it's so startling to me is because we've got the age of Israel, right, where he calls out Abram, uh -huh. and he sets aside, sets aside the people of, of his own, right? Yes. All tribes, whatnot. There's prophecy in there about the coming Messiah that Israel misses. And then we come to the age of the Gentiles in the New Testament to present day. And then after the rapture, it's back focused on Israel again. Uh -huh. The Messiah has been here. Yes. The one that are the ones that are part of his kingdom are the ones that accept the Messiah. Yes. So I that's see that's where I get hung up. I'm like, well, if you accept the Messiah, then you're a Christian. So you're part of the church. But the church is no longer yeah, if you accept Messiah, you are yeah. So they're accessing Christ, redeemed. You're saved as their Messiah, mm -hmm. right? You know, and I mean today, it's not that ethnic Israel has rejected their Messiah; they reject God. Period. Today, mostly. Yeah. But okay. anyway, all right. Yeah, because the Messiah is God, right? Uh, going back to our Trinitarian theology, if you reject Jesus, you reject the Father. So, yes, yeah, they. At that point, believe in a, a different God entirely. They're still going to be Trinitarians as well. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they will be. They will be Trinitarians, these, uh, these Jews who come to Christ after the rapture, um, but they will not be within the church. But they will be saved by God, by the blood of Christ, just as all everybody in the kingdom is. Everybody in the kingdom has been bought by the blood of Christ, even though it was before Christ. They were all saved in the same way, same fashion, um, by faith, right? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that belief, that faith, that trust in the coming Messiah is what made Abraham uh, saved, what made him in the kingdom, but that didn't put him in the church. There's, all I'm trying to communicate is there's a distinction between the kingdom and the church. All right. Um, I don't know. Okay. It's maybe Second Thessalonians two. I don't know. Yeah, I'll tell you in a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be 144,000 witnesses, right? Yeah, that's quite an army. What are they witnessing to? They're witnessing to the Messiah. And the fact that they are Jewish witnesses, I think, holds a lot of weight because they're saying, dude, we missed it. Um, he came and, and we didn't realize it. And we need to repent now and, and come to him in faith. All right, let's pray. God, we did go over some heavy things this morning. I pray that you would help us to understand them, that you would help us to uh, continually grow in our, our knowledge and our relationship with you, that we would... Uh, be so thankful that you have bought us with your blood, that you have not seen it as sufficient just to save and redeem Israel, but you have come and you have laid down your life for the nations. God, we pray for those who don't know you, 
Jew and Gentile alike, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would use us to speak truth into their life. God, help us to just be in awe of who you are and that we would magnify your name as we continue to worship you and learn about you this morning. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.